Good morning, everybody. How are you? So glad to have a packed house here during second service. Uh, my voice has been a little frail this week, so my apologies ahead of time. If at some point through the sermon you see it here, it kind of diminish. We're uh, praying and doing whatever we can to, to get it through here this morning. Um, my name is Jeremy. I'm the pastor of Spiritual Formation in Small Groups, and I'm thrilled that you're here. The clip that you just watched comes from the movie uh, in 2005 called Kingdom of Heaven. And the setting in the movie is the year 1187 AD. And that is the city of Jerusalem, which was under siege that year from Salahuddin and his Islamic army. They are poised in that film, as you can see, to conquer and retake the city having lost it to the European crusaders almost a hundred years prior to that. Now, none of us has any clue what it's like, but oh my goodness, how horrible to be inside a city under siege. And that was real life for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I can only imagine how terrible but what a horrible, horrible thing to have to endure. Day after day, the attacks coming against you, the debris, the fire, the, the arrows, the, the invaders getting in, being pushed out, holding on for dear life, but slowly cutting a city off from any hope or chance of survival. Well, what we saw in the movie clip in 1187 AD isn't the first time the city of Jerusalem had come under siege. It happened a number of times. Specifically, this morning, it had happened during the life of Isaiah, the prophet, in 701 B.C. Isaiah, if you don't know, is the author of the Old Testament book that we are studying and the main character in our current sermon series called, What Happened? During this series, we are covering actual historical events that took place that were incredibly consequential to Judah and are talked about by the prophet Isaiah. Jerusalem, in this morning's story, is besieged, much like we saw in the video, this time by the vicious Assyrian army, led by their commander, Sennacherib. He is the great conquering general of the Assyrians, laying waste to all who come across his path. Now, just like the folks in the video, under Saladin's siege, the people of Jerusalem are in an incredibly dire situation with Assyria. Now let's cover a little background about Assyria because you might not know a lot about Assyria. The nation of Assyria uh, had recently moved through the region and they had moved south along the Mediterranean and they had wiped out what is known as the Northern Kingdom. Now, Israel used to be a unified nation of 12 tribes. After King Solomon died and his son uh, Rehoboam came to power, there was a civil war. Rehoboam to the south, one of the, uh, uh, his generals, Jeroboam to the north, split the country in two. 10 of the tribes went with the Northern Kingdom Israel, Two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stayed and formed the southern kingdom of Judah. That's 
the geographic and the history behind it. Now, Assyria had already conquered the northern kingdom and laid waste to them. And Assyria is not a nice country. Now, I don't know that there is a nice invading country, um, especially back in that day, but there might be levels of terrible. And uh, as far as levels of terrible go, uh, there was none more terrible than Assyria. They were the worst and the most vicious of their day. There's a number of examples of this, but let's just talk about one little example. You all know about crucifixion, right? Who's, what nation or what uh, empire is, is made crucifixion popular? Rome, right? They would uh, create a cross. They would tie or nail you to it over a period of a day or two. The um, holding up of your arms impacts your body's ability to inhale, exhale. It thickens your blood. It's a very horrible, painful way to, to be tortured and killed. The Romans perfected it for its creating pain over the longest possible time before actually taking your life. But they didn't invent crucifixion. Oh no, guess who invented crucifixion? The Assyrians. And they were much less technical about it. Their version of crucifixion was to drive pointed stakes into the ground along the roads of the cities, in and along the roads, in and out of the cities they conquered, and they would simply impale its inhabitants on these pointed posts in the ground and leave them there to bleed out and to die. That is what was facing you when the Assyrian army was camping at the gates of your city. Now, after the Assyrian army uh, defeated the northern kingdom, as I talked about, they left nothing behind of Israel. Later on, Babylon's going to come in, uh, and they're going to capture Jerusalem about 100 years later, and they're going to take them into captivity. They're going to deport them back to Babylon. But they're going to allow Judah and Benjamin and the, the people of Israel to maintain their ethnic heritage. They're going to allow them to intermarry, to maintain their, their existence as a people. Assyria didn't do that. Assyria... When they conquered Israel, those they didn't kill, they sold off into slavery all over the empire. And 10, the northern 10 tribes, were wiped out, lost forever. In fact, in the New Testament, if you heard the term Samaritan, the good Samaritan, the Samaritans were the half-breeds, the, what was left over of the northern kingdom who held some connection to the people of Israel although Israel rejected them because they weren't pure in their ethnicity any longer because of what Assyria had done to them. And that's how Assyria dealt with the nation of Israel. So what's it like to face that level of terror and fear? None of us can know. None of us can know what it's like to experience that for even a day. That is not our world. We just not even on our radar. But the story of Sennacherib and the story of the besieged city of Jerusalem is relevant for us today. 
So what do we need to do to receive what God has for us in today's message as we continue? So I wanted to ask the question, and it's going to take us to kind of to think for a moment, but what is it that brings us real terror or fear in our lives? Is there anything, really? There might be, for some of us, it could be the COVID virus and the possibility of death or severe sickness. For some, this is a real fear. It's debilitating fear. It's consuming on so many different thoughts and emotions and levels. When, we lay, when you lay down at night, that's what keeps you awake. The fear, am I going to get sick? Am so-and-so going to get sick? It's just always, always hammering away. After what happened this week at the Capitol, some people are terrified for our country and for the direction it keeps heading in. As the political parties continue to divide, civility, generosity of spirit diminishes with each and every year, and we don't necessarily see anything changing. It's kind of scary from a political perspective where this thing could go, short of some miraculous, loving intervention on the part of somebody to stop the divisiveness. This past month, I don't know if you know, but we had our first month of job losses since restarting the economy. When we shut down the economy back in March for the two months that we shut it down, we shed jobs and economic vibrancy just gone when we shut down the country's economy. When we started it back up, we've been adding jobs every month up until this past month. This was the first time that the economy actually got rid of jobs again. And so we're starting to see the long-term effects of shutting down the economy, keeping parts of it shut down, the lingering effects of the virus. And some of you are worried about your job, or some of you are dependent upon somebody whose job might be in jeopardy or in peril. This could be a real terror-causing event in your life. And then for some of us, it's our family. We love, we adore our family. The potential loss of a spouse, a child, is terrifying on so many levels. Some of us might even say that there's no way we ourselves could survive such a, a loss if we were honest with ourselves. What are your troubles heading into this new year? What keeps you awake at night? What keeps you from going to sleep peacefully? in the evenings. Well, we Zilkies are going to experience something new this year, and it's not a huge deal, but it's a first for us. Our oldest, David, is likely going away to college. We're in the process of figuring out, doing all the crazy stuff you have to do when you send a child away with FAFSA and all the other paperwork. And um, separate from that, though, and we're going to do this eight times, right? So at the end, I'll write you a book, and I'll tell you exactly how it's going to go and, and the best way to navigate through this process. But right now, it's our first. And separate from all of that, my eldest son is about to head out into a world. We're done. Our parenting opportunity is over. 
Now we get to parent if he wants us to. The best we can really hope for is to be a, to be a friend, to be a counselor, to be a, a, an, a place of enjoyment and rest for him to come back to. But once we launch him, he's on his own. And our time being the direct guardians over him are done. Now that's kind of a big deal. For those of you who've sent kids off like that before, your adult children who've gone through that process, that can be really scary, really alarming. And so that's what we're dealing with this year, not knowing what the future is going to hold, not knowing in this world of ever-changing circumstances, what does the future hold for David? What are your troubles this new year? I want to encourage you, if there are things that are weighing on you and you've not thought about it, you know that there's a burden, but you don't know what those burdens are, make a list, sit down with a journal, thought, be thoughtful, be prayerful, write it out, figure out what it is that is weighing on your heart because it's taking a toll if you don't. Don't let these lingering burdens rob you of your peace of mind. Bring your fears into the light. Because this morning's message is this. Are your troubles overwhelming? God is greater. Are your troubles overwhelming? God is greater. Let's take a look at Isaiah and see exactly what's going on with the hero or with the main character of our story here this morning. So Sennacherib is the... uh, Assyrian general, and he sends an emissary named Rabshakeh to the king of Judah, Hezekiah, with an offer to accept their surrender and to minimize how terrible being conquered by the Assyrians will be. This is what he says in Isaiah chapter 36, verses 18 through 20. Now he's speaking to the people of Judah about their king, Okay, just to give you some context of, of who's speaking here. This is what Rebshekah says. Beware, Judah, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. He's making a compelling argument. He's saying this, what other gods before you have rescued the peoples whom we've previously conquered? And since the answer is zero, why should you trust in your God? Because the same thing that happened to them is going to happen to you. He also taunts the God of Israel a little bit in the process uh, by comparing him to any other God that might be worshipped by the pagan peoples of the world. But then he proclaims this. He reminds Judah and Hezekiah that their God did not save the northern kingdom, the northern 12 tribes, or the northern 10 tribes, and he proclaims to them that their God will not save them either. Now, there's some other things that he says, and there's a lot of posturing, and there's a lot of 
bloviation, which is what you're going to get in these negotiations to try to scare your, your city into making it as easy on your invading army as possible. But after all of this, Hezekiah responds. And the question is, what does he do? Well, in Isaiah 37.1, we read this. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, this message from Rebshekah and all of his threats, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Hezekiah humbles himself and repents. Whatever else his recourse was as a king, was he going to reach out to Egypt? Was he going to try to cut a deal with another country to come to his aid to, to minimize the uh, being alone against Assyria? Who knows what? Whatever was on the table is no longer on the table. And with nowhere else to go, in a place of pure desperation, Hezekiah finally comes to the end of his means and realizes that the Lord is his only resource and he then bows to him and he worships. And it says there that he tore his clothes and wore sackcloth. Now, I don't know if you know, but you would tear your clothes and you'd put on this sackcloth was this really painful clothing. It had like some type of abrasive material that would stick into your skin and it would literally cause you pain to wear it. But it was a visible sign that you had sinned, that you were wrong, that you were in an active spirit of repentance. You were saying, God, I am repenting of being a sinner, of falling short of your goodness and your glory. And this is what the king did. This is how the king dressed himself. How do we humble ourselves today? Nobody around here is wearing sackcloth, I don't think, right? How do we humble ourselves before the Lord when we come to the end of our rope and we realize there is no Egypt, there is no other person, other nation coming to our help, that our city is surrounded and in great peril, and unless God comes in and helps, there is no help to be found? How do we repent? Are we willing to fall down face first on the ground, literally on the ground in humble desperation before God and say, God, I need your help. I need you and you alone. That's what the Lord wants from us. God wasn't disappointed when Hezekiah did that. He was thrilled. It's that humble, that desperate that, Lord, I need you, nothing else can help, I need you, Lord. That wholehearted declaration that actually honors God and brings him joy. After his humility and repentance, Hezekiah does a second thing. We read this in Isaiah 37, verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, he asked for God's help. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, 
O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all nations and all their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. And notice, I want to emphasize verse 20. So now, O Lord, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. This is a full-throated, wholehearted, desperate plea for God's help and intervention at this moment. And I get into this a little bit in my first point, but I want to reemphasize, are we willing to seek the Lord this passionately, this fervently, this desperately? It's hard to be humble like that. And yet our most fervent prayers are often born out of desperation. My brothers and sisters, desperation is not a terrible place. In the eyes of God, desperation is a wonderful place because we are nothing but humble. And God is always at the ready and wanting to come to the rescue of his people when they are humble before him. And so as the armies crowd in around the city and we're not sure what to do, we're not sure where we can go, humility, repentance, desperate pleas for God's help are totally appropriate ways to respond to those types of challenges and life circumstances. And do not think differently. Please do not be too cool for school. Please do not think that that's, ah, no, I, I'm not going to relate to God that way. That's how a, a, a wimp or some wuss would respond. No, God wants the desperate pleas of his people. That's often why he allows for struggles, for sickness, for weariness to come in because it's then when we're desperate that we will truly humble ourselves and open ourselves up to him. How can we seek the Lord's help in these moments? Well, there's several practical things I think that we do. I don't know that we're throwing sackcloth on, right? And walking around that way. It's just not something we do anymore. Although I think Matt would probably do it just to prove a point at some point. So we'll have to wait and see. What would be better? Nothing or sackcloth? We'll have to find out. Um, but daily Bible reading. Think about it. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But for those of us that consider ourselves followers of Jesus, are we daily going to our God with his word that says it will never change even as the world around us changes? And are we reading and hearing from him on a daily basis? The earth has shifted under our feet over the last 12 months. The world that was in January of 2020 is not the world that is in January 2021. 
The economy is different. People's view of health and interpersonal interaction is different. The political world is different. And we are the people of God. We are the followers of Jesus. If anybody should be ahead and ready to respond to this ever-changing world, not caught on our heels hoping to just survive and get through it, it is us. And the only confidence that we can have in this now extremely tumultuous world in which we live is the confidence that we have heard today from the God of the universe through his word, which he says, though heaven and earth will pass away, my words will not pass away. In this year 2021, I want to invite you, begin, continue, increase the amount that you go to God and you go to him in his word. We're fools. We're fools if we think we're just going to kind of accidentally ride this out and it's going to be okay. God wants us to thrive and he's going to ask that we do it his way, relying on him, trusting in him. So I want to encourage daily reading of the word, which will lead us to then want to pray. We'll then want to talk to God more often. We'll have conversations. We'll find ourselves in moments of need that we can't handle and we'll, we'll cry out to God. We'll ask the Lord for his help and he'll respond and this relationship will grow. And so consistent prayer will develop as a byproduct of that. And then we're not designed to do this alone. We had a bunch of people here at Rooftop involved in community for years. The beginning of last year, we had... 230-ish, 40 people in small groups, and then the pandemic hit. Some people clung to their groups, but many people drifted. We stopped attending church regularly, and we stopped hanging out with the people who we relied on. And all of a sudden, if you look at your life now, nine months later, you're isolated, you're separated you might come here, but we're distanced. We're wearing masks. We don't really open up our lives to each other. We're not connected like we used to be in community. Reconnect with your small group. Reconnect with that community of people that you were meeting with because the stakes are even greater than they were a year ago. And if you're not part of a community and this Sunday morning thing just because of the unfortunate distancing that is required at this time, get into a small group. Join a group. Find some type of community that you can begin building relationships with so that when your city is surrounded, when you're feeling like Assyria is bombarding the walls, you have people to reach out to, to ask for help, to ask for prayer. We cannot do this alone. We should not do this alone. Please, join a group. And after all of this, what is God's answer to Hezekiah? Well, he answers him in chapter 37, verse 35. And he says this, For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant, David. God says, I will defend this city to save it 
for my own sake, for my own glory. The events of 2020 were not accidental. They were permitted by a sovereign God who has a plan through it all. And we want to be at the ready to respond to him, whatever his plan might be with that, not caught off guard, feeling uncertain and anxious about it every step of the way. God has a plan. He has his glory that he wants to reveal through this, just like he did for Isaiah with the Assyrian army. And this leads us back to the main point today. Are your troubles overwhelming? God is greater. Are your troubles overwhelming? God is greater. So what does God do for Judah with this Assyrian army at the walls, besieging the city, terrible things coming? Well, as far as miracles of the Bible go, this is one of the big ones. There's a bunch of big ones throughout the Bible. Stone hitting Goliath through the head, you know, knocking him over. That's kind of a big one. This is a big one. And it's recorded both in Isaiah 37 and also in the book of 2 Kings by two completely different authors. Now, it's a historical event, but Assyria doesn't record it this way, obviously, because they were the victims of it. But let's find out exactly what happens here. In Isaiah 37, verse 36, it says this, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. In one night, in one night, God sends out an angel of death and he kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, lays waste to the most powerful army in the land of that day, leaving their rotting carcasses at the walls of the city. And those that are left alive in the Assyrian army says this, Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Are your troubles overwhelming? Is the enemy about to break, breach the city walls? Are you about to die? Are you about to be conquered? God can send an angel of death and change the odds of survival in one night. God miraculously changed the course of history in the process. Assyria had been steamrolling. After they wipe out Jerusalem, who knows? Egypt might have been next. They literally could have conquered the known world of that day. But one angel, one night, and they fade off in history. Never to be heard from shortly thereafter leaving a big gap that Babylon would step into about 50 years later. What's the parallel for us today? Like I said, we don't live in cities surrounded by invading armies, right? But there is a parallel for us when we think of a city under siege, which is the title of today's message. And that which is like a city under siege would be your heart and my heart. 
Our hearts are like cities with walls. Proverbs 4.23 says this, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. Our hearts are often besieged in our world day after day, just like cities we have talked about, just like Jerusalem, which we saw earlier. Sin, self-reliance, fear, anxiety, bitterness, jealousy, anger, rage, demand for control. These are all attacks on our heart. The types of evil that are trying to lay siege to the heart that God has said, guard your heart, for out of it flows the wellspring of life. Now, wouldn't we all love an angel of death to come and to vanquish these enemies, right? The enemies that we face. To see 185,000 enemies of our soul wiped out in one night. And this is how God wins battles, right? Angel armies, they come and they win the battle for him. Yes, Jesus is willing to send an angel of death on behalf of his people. But think about it. Even that event is only a temporary fix. Because once Assyria leaves, who's just around the corner that's going to come to the city of Jerusalem again? Babylon. No, our hearts are under siege by sin, by sickness, by our own mistakes, by our own selfishness. And God made a better way than an angel of death. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save the city, to save our hearts. Jesus, as cool as an angel of death would be, Jesus Christ is the better choice. Because whereas the angel of death brings death, Jesus Christ brings life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus' own words in John 10.10 tell us, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, to tear down the walls of the city and destroy our heart, destroy us inside. Jesus says this, I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. And we need to remember that. If you are at the end, if you are feeling like the bombardment is going on, we need to just cry out to Jesus and ask him to come and to forgive and to heal and to rescue the city, to rescue our heart. He will rescue your heart He will forgive your sins. He will allow you to forgive those who have sinned against you, those whom you hate, whom you are so angry at. Jesus will give you new life. He will give you grace and peace. Are your troubles overwhelming? Through Jesus Christ, God is greater. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for (laughs) a better option than an angel of death. As awesome as it can seem to see you wipe out 185,000 of the enemies of God's people, it's only a temporary fix, God. 
We need Jesus. We want Jesus. We want to have life. We want to be able to rise above, to love, to serve, to be forgiven and to forgive. When we feel like we're the city under siege, we want to respond and live like our Lord would have lived, with grace, with peace. And so we desperately cry out and ask for him through the power of your Holy Spirit to renew us, to help us, to reorient us on the path that you would have for us, Lord. Thank you for delivering your people from Sennacherib. And thank you for delivering us here today. We ask in Jesus' name.